welcome everyone to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant today. We're very excited today to start a series with my son, Brian McKinley. Brian and I have been working together on concepts that cause us to live the examine life. And Brian, say hi to everyone and introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian McKinley. I'm one of the doctor's sons, the second to youngest. I'm in my early 30s. I live in Michigan near where Dr. McKinley lives. I have two children and I have a unique personal history, which I am sure we will touch on over time. But yes, I enjoy conversations related to these philosophical concepts. And we've been having this ongoing conversation for years now, both together in private and in front of the classroom with students, and then also here on the podcast. And it's been a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to continuing. So thanks for having me back. I have to say that you are very enjoyable to have on, and you're a great conversationalist. You have a way of restating some of the things I state. One of the things I want to look at is something that Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, mentioned 2,500 years ago, And that's the unexamined life is not worth living. And that's an interesting statement. And to unpackage that statement, there's a lot to it. First of all, would you agree, Brian, that the unexamined life is not worth living? I know I agree with that. How do you feel about that? I would agree with that. And there's, I guess, other tenants. This is maybe more of an Eastern philosophy, but the idea of ignorance is seen as the cause of a great deal of suffering. So the idea that ignorance leads to suffering or the unexamined life is not worth living makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that that's a ubiquitous principle of wisdom. If you want to grow, if you want to enrich others, then you have to think and not just get entangled in emotional thinking or attachment or stressful thinking or being a follower or conformist or just doing what you're told. It seems that if you're going to not only enjoy your life or live a life that's worth living, you have to do some thinking. You have to apply yourself, and in order to get a good yield, you've got to plant good seeds and take care of that. You have to grow yourself actively, it seems. Well, there's an awareness that we have as we go through life, and I think it's something that's part of our maturation. I don't know if maturity is the right word, but certainly as we maturate out of our childhood into our young adults, into our adulthood, we have a tendency to come draw some conclusions about things that have not worked for us in the past, things that we've seen not work for other people. And then we start asking ourselves the questions, is there a better way to do this? Is there a better way to get a different result? 
thought leaders and philosophers and religious leaders have been pontificating about these ideas for all recorded history, and I'm certain before that as well. However, it seems like it's such a tough thing to do for us to really seriously look at our challenges, the things that are not working for us, and asking ourselves what would work better. I have kind of packaged my philosophy together in basically 24 different components of the examined life. And I feel that it's a good starting point for having that conversation and being thoughtful, as you said, where we start thinking about some things. So what I've asked the reader of my book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, I've asked the reader to really look at those 24 different concepts and do some self-examination. And also given tools and ways to expand out of that. And when awareness comes to you, what can you do to process to a different understanding, a different level of awareness, different responses in your life than you're currently getting? And if we're going to examine our life, the goal it would be in the end to say, once we've examined it, let's make it worth living. Let's make it better. Let's have it be something that's more meaningful to us and to other people. And I think that's our goal, and that's certainly my goal in writing the book, doing these podcasts, is to have a conversation with people and allow them to have a conversation with us, with other people, reflect on things personally, and make some new decisions out of awareness and self-discovery. Do you have any thoughts on that? Want to add to anything I just said? Indeed, these 24 elements of behavior that one might discover when they're examining their life is applicable to anybody. It's really amazing that you've come up with this stuff. And a lot of it is interestingly right in alignment with a lot of things that you would encounter when other professionals examine your life. In the past century, from Freud to Jung to we're big fans of Viktor Frankl, who was a psychologist, and the number one treatment for when a person is going through crisis or exhibiting a mental obstacle or challenge or disability, one of the very first treatment modalities is talk therapy and self-examination. That's where we start. And it's one of the ones that has survived through time. You know, there was other therapies that fortunately have gone extinct, but one therapy that really remains is to talk about it to go back and examine. So there's no doubt that this process of examining your life has been really zeroed in on in the past century, even though it's a century-old challenge to improve yourself. There's no question that these 24 points and your arrangement of them is a great modality to go along with other modalities that one might be using to improve themselves or to deal with crisis or trauma or whatever. Or it could also be a brand new way of just getting started in that process. Maybe you've never thought you needed therapy or anything like that. But these are not just for people in crisis, but people in crisis and people who are just looking to grow or enhance themselves or enhance their relationship. And as we go through it, it's up to people to just try it and see. So that's my thought about how this kind of into the 
greater project of humanity trying to ease its own suffering and confusion. And this is a tremendous contribution in that whole process. So where do we start? I think the best place to start is probably where I began. For me, the first one of the 24 is the one that kind of got me on this track of starting to examine my life because when I was around 30, 35 years old, I realized that things weren't going as well in my life as I would like. I certainly had success as society would define it as a dentist, but I didn't have that joy and sense of fulfillment and feeling good about myself having other people feel good about themselves around me. One of my friends said to me, Ray, you're like a human bulldozer. You know, everything has to be your way and you just run people over. And that was a hard thing to hear. I didn't like hearing it, but I started to reflect on it. And what I started to reflect on was how many dead bodies, metaphorically speaking, that left along the side of the road. And that just didn't feel good to me. And I felt that I wanted to start evaluating and self-examining and really out of necessity of the pain I was feeling as a result of that, what I recognized is how much blaming I was doing. And that's the first one of the 24 I want to talk about is our blaming nature. And what I realized that it just wasn't me, I realized that many people today are into blame. Think about it, Brian. How many times do you blame in a day? How many times do you blame in an hour? Do you blame every minute? For me, blame was constantly present in my internal dialogue. If I wasn't blaming someone else for something they needed to be doing because it wasn't getting what I wanted to get done or it was getting in my way and I was blaming them for it, it was something I did to somebody else that I blamed myself and I couldn't get past being mad at myself or angry at myself for doing what I had done. So I had this constant blaming of myself. So I read a book called Blaming Yourself and Others. And I thought, wow, that was a tough read for me because I felt that that really fit for me and how I was just constantly into blaming of myself and others. Do you have an awareness similar to that, Brian, or what questions come up to you as a result of me making that statement to you? Well, some people truly should be blamed for things that are going on, right? Like, we can blame changes in gas prices. We can blame that on real-world things. Changes in the marketplace, you can blame that on something. Like That's a matter of reality. If somebody does something to you, you know, if someone breaks your leg, they, they broke your leg. So they're to blame. I see blame as being more or less just kind of a natural given. Like it's just the way it is. That person deserves the blame because they messed up. You know, what's interesting about that, you mentioned Victor Frankel. Victor Frankel talked about that. Certainly he spent that time in the concentration camp during World War II. And he talked about blaming the Germans for killing his wife, killing his family members, killing his friends, suffering, all the suffering he did in the concentration camps. He certainly had a lot of people to blame. But Victor Frankl came out of that experience and saying, I can't live my life in blame anymore. Because what he said is, I might lose my 
liberty, someone might take that away from me, but I never lose my freedom to respond. And we're always free to respond. So it's really not so much about the blaming, because we always have people in our life that have caused us a problem. And we can certainly point to them. We can point to our government. We can point to our politicians. We can point to our neighbor. We can point to you know, a family member. We can point to our spouse. We can point to other people. However, it's how we respond to that situation that's really what I want to talk about. So when I talk about blaming, I'm talking about how we respond to those situations of blame. So another way of saying it is I think we have to look at and say, do we have some personal responsibility in our blaming nature? I think when you talk about responsibility, you, you can say this person was responsible for this happening to me. You can blame them and make them responsible. However, the two words together, personal responsibility, to me, connotes something different. So there's a responsibility, and then there's personal responsibility, which is our ability to respond. And Victor Frankl called on us to respond in a way that we had personal responsibility and how we were going to let that affect us. And I think one of the things that I got out of that experience was I took on a belief. I started to believe I'm personally responsible for how I respond to everything that happens to me. I stopped pointing the finger at the other person because when you point the finger at the other person, you have three fingers pointing back at you. And when I considered those three fingers pointing back at me, I started to say, okay, what's my role in this mischief? It takes two to tango. What did I do as part of that process? And then if I did nothing and it was totally 100% the other person's responsibility, now at this point, I have personal responsibility in how I respond to the situation. So what I started to do is I started to live out some precepts that started to mitigate some of this blaming nature I was having. One was I will stop blaming myself and others. I just stopped thinking about it. I stopped having that self-talk, which was just so negative about other people and situations that I was wanting to blame. So I started to say, I'll stop blaming myself and others. Yes, I get it. There's blame to be had. There's people at fault, but I'll stop blaming them. I will consider my mischief first before I begin to blame others. That's another thing I kept saying to myself. And I kept going back to a story that happened to a friend of mine named Paul Kohler. Paul worked in a shop in Roseville, Michigan, while he was in college, and he was an art student. He wanted to be an art teacher. He was going to Wayne State University. But he also had to work to make some money. So he chose to work in a stamping factory that had presses and they were stamping parts for the auto industry. And one thing led to another, which he ended up getting his hands caught in the press and he lost both hands just above the wrist. And done. There it is. His goal, his life, his dream is over. How is he going to be an art teacher now? Devastating. I mean, I wanted to be a dentist. If that would have happened to me, my dreams would have been gone too. No dentistry. How could I do dentistry without hands? I mean, devastating. And I was really taken back by that experience. 
What shocked me was how Paul Kohler never really blamed his boss for putting pressure on the crew to speed up production, his foreman for taking off the safety feature off the machine and having two people run the press instead of one, because now with two people running the press, one was putting the part in for the press and the other one was pushing the button to bring the lever down, where before it was designed to be one person, so the person had to get their hands up before they hit the press, but it was a slower process. But there's three people he could have easily blamed and could have lamented that situation for a lifetime. And it was his boss, his foreman, and his coworker. But Paul never did that. And that just shocked me. It really exemplified what it was to take personal responsibility for how you respond to that situation. And that's the kind of thing that I saw in him that caused me to go back and look at things that I was blaming people for and saying, wait a minute, back up the train. Why am I blaming these people for something far less? And Paul is forgiven them, moved on, and lived a life of joy and happiness and fulfillment and still got his degree in art became an advocate for people who needed social benefits and benefits for the disabilities. He eventually did fulfill his dream to be an art teacher in his later career. And it was just amazing to have a relationship with him and see him. And I, I've asked him many, many times, Paul, you know, I just don't know how you did it. I mean, if it happened to me, I would have blown my brains out. And he said, well, I would have if I could have pulled the trigger in his facetious humorous way of responding to that question. But it was interesting to me to watch that example of taking something that you could blame for the rest of your life, lament it for the rest of your life, and be angry about it, be bitter about it, and every other feeling that we have when we want to blame. Paul Kohler had every reason to have all those feelings, and he didn't. That's what Victor Frankl was talking about. You know, Paul, Brian, you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I know Paul well, and it's kind of, it remains unbelievable to me that he was not <laughs> infuriated, angry. He found a way through that situation rather than letting it inhibit him. When you talk to him about it, it didn't ruin his life. It just changed his life. And if that were to happen to me, I think I'd say it ruined my life. If that were to happen to a lot of people, they would say, it ruined my life. And he just saw it as, like, a challenge to be overcome. And in short order, he went about overcoming that challenge. And him and his dad created yeah. special prosthetics that he could use so that he could still do certain things, like play basketball, play golf. And then that innovation carried with him as he decided to still pursue his education in art without hands, which was really extraordinary. And he became the first bilateral amputee in the country, actually, to receive a degree in art. So, yeah, it's a really remarkable story that should probably be explored in more, more detail in the future because it's so inspiring. And I talk to him and I wonder about his, his the blame dialogue that he has had with himself on the inside and it's certainly 
true, it's a matter of reality that this could have been avoided, this could have been prevented, and justice could still be done without blame and without vindictiveness and without succumbing to that. So, yeah. yeah. It's a powerful story. You know, Brian, when I... I've gone through this process and, you know, we're certainly encouraging people to consider this process of stop blaming and consider something, consider an alternative. One of the things that I recognized was that my blaming nature made me look weak. It didn't make me look strong. In other words, when I saw the blamers in my life, I saw it as a weakness. And I recognized that when I was blaming, it was a sign of my weakness. And I just decided that I don't want to appear weak. So I made some new decisions about that. I said, you know, in order for me to do that, I need to stop blaming. And I need to find another response. In taking personal responsibility for how I was responding the way Paul did was a very key piece for me. And I had to think about some things that would cause me to have a different feeling about that. I started to consider that I want to consider my mischief first and what could I have done different before I begin to blame others? You know, I think Paul, when I asked him this question, he said, you know, I really put myself in a not a very safe place. For a person who wanted to be an artist and be a teacher, I probably should have picked a better place to work than a press shop. But it was paying more money, so I was wanting to earn more money. So I did it for the wrong reasons. And I'm thinking, wow, that's an amazing way to look at it. So I just found that for me, I needed to stop explaining, defending, and justifying why I should be angry, why I should be mad, why I should be bitter, why I should blame, and start taking personal responsibility for how I responded in the situation by cutting myself a little slack, cutting other people a little slack, rejecting other people in my life who wanted to egg my blaming on or to become co-conspirators in my blaming nature. One of the things that I found is when we are blamers, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with other blamers. And so I had people in my life saying to me, you have every right to feel that way. You have every right to be angry. You have every right to be mad. And I think that's one of the things that keeps us stuck in our blaming nature is that we find ourselves buying into the narrative that other blamers have, and we start having relationships with other people who are blamers. And this is what I call the codependency that we have with other people who I support your blaming nature and you support my blaming nature. So it's very difficult to break the pattern of a blamer because of the relationships that we have that keep us stuck. And one of the things that I found interesting as I was trying to wrap Paul into a blaming nature, into a conversation around blame, I said, you know, I just couldn't believe he wasn't more angry, he wasn't more bitter, he wasn't just infuriated, you know, he wasn't attacking and being critical of his boss or the other people in his workplace. I mean, I'm being critical of his boss and the other people in his workplace. I'm just saying how could you do that? Aren't you going to assume for everything they own? Trying to get Paul to see it my way. But he never, ever bought into it. My sister wrote to 
the hospital in the ambulance with Paul because it was a close family friend. And one of the things she remembers him saying on the way to the hospital, well, this certainly changes things. I'm going to have to figure out a way to make this work. I mean, this is just within an hour of it happening, and he's already considering a way to make it work, figuring it out. And even before he left the hospital, his dad was designing things that they could tape to his arm so he could still write and draw and paint. And it was just amazing to me when you say, we're going to figure this out, he really meant it. So again, the first thing we need to do when we look at our blaming nature is look at how we're responding to it. Yes, there's a lot of people that we can blame in our life. There's a lot of people we can point our fingers at. And there's a lot of things that can happen. However, it's how we respond to the situation that matters. And I like to respond differently than I have in the past. One of the things I really have grown to develop in my mind is I practice what I call premeditated forgiveness. I know that in advance that others will falter. And I know that their missteps and misdeeds will affect me as my mischief and my misdeeds will affect them. So knowing that these things are going to happen going into life, I'm already prepared for people's mischief in my life now. And I just say, okay, I can be more understanding, more accepting, more tolerant, more willing to be patient and more willing to give the person a second chance because I'm going to want a second chance too. So again, it's all about how we respond to the situations that we're talking about here, not so much the actual act that we want to blame someone for. How does that work for you, Brian? Does that make sense to you? Do you have any additional comments about that? Yeah, and I get the impression that we're not talking about big issue type blame. We're not talking about, you know, there's things that you can't control happening outside of you. And those things you can blame or not blame. But you're really talking about this on a more internal or maybe spiritual level and also an interpersonal level where, yeah, we can blame this on that. We can blame so-and-so for this. But in your personal life, what good is it doing you? to blame others? What good is it doing you to be blaming in the workplace? What good is it to automatically go to, oh, well, this other person did this and shifting the mischief, as you say, off to another person, which is the habit. And it seems to me that you're suggesting there is a level of control that you have over the amount of blame that you're doing. The point where your control comes in is like, okay, I could blame this event on somebody or I could just focus all my mental faculties and all of my energy and emotions on to how do I respond? What do I have control over? Because I don't have control over this other person and what happened to me. So blame is really spinning your wheels on something that you have no recourse or control over in a lot of circumstances. The only thing that you have control over is you and your choices and the aftermath. And that's really what you're trying to draw our attention to. Am I right? Absolutely. 
that's exactly what yeah. we're trying to get. When we start examining our life, we start examining the ways we're responding to these situations. See, when I started to get past the blame issue from the standpoint of pointing the finger and getting mad and angry at the other person, I realized something else about blame that was very, very important. I realized that when I blame somebody else, it does more harm to my mindset than it does to the person who I'm blaming. Because what that created in me was I found myself not being very sensitive. I found myself maybe lacking the ability to show grace and compassion and understanding. Because unless I was willing to back off and stop the blaming, I realized that the side effect of my blaming was this feeling inside of being not very compassionate, not being very sensitive. I found that I was spewing venom all over everyone because I was angry. And I found I was spewing anger at people who weren't even a part of what I was blaming. In other words, they were a different relationship. My anger about what happened caused a mindset in me that poisoned the way I looked at situations in another relationship. And I was damaging another relationship because I was responding so poorly to this other thing that happened that isn't even directly related. However, in my mind, it was directly related because I had these thoughts in my mind that were so negative, I wasn't going to let other people take advantage of me. Well, not everyone's going to take advantage of you. I had this situation that someone took advantage of me and I blamed them for it. That doesn't mean that the next person I'm in relationship with, that they're going to be taking advantage of me. But I never gave them a chance because I believed that people are going to take advantage of me and it hurt so much that I wasn't going to let it happen again. So I realized how this emotionally was affecting the way I interrelated to people. So it prevented me from being more understanding, more forgiving, more tolerant, more accepting, more affirming. Brian, we've had many conversations about being more accepting and be more affirming. But you know what really happens is you can't do it. You can fake it. You can try to make it by being more accepting and affirming. But there's nothing real about it. Because as long as you have these deep-seated anger inside of you and deep-seated feelings about blaming other people and blaming situations and things that you haven't been able to forgive situations for or stop blaming other people, then these lingering emotions that prevent you from being the kind of person that you want to be that can create better relationships, it just doesn't happen. And that's when I started to recognize that this is doing more harm to me than it's doing to the person I'm trying to blame. It made no sense to me. And when I finally had that awareness and critically thought it through, I said, hmm, I need to take a look at this. And I realized I had to change my core belief about that original situation in order for my blaming nature to not affect and poison my current relationships I was trying to have in my life and the current relationships I was trying to have with my children, because they were deeply affected by that. And even as they go into an adulthood, I see how that issue that I had deeply affected me, it deeply affected my kids, and now they're wrestling with this as they become adults and trying to do what they need to do in their relationships in their life. So if I could help anybody prevent this problem in the first place, 
I'm going to do it in the best way I can. What would you like to say about that, Brian? Oh, I totally agree. There's a ripple effect to an attitude of blame. So blame and personal responsibility, you're juxtaposing these two, like they're opposites of each other. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So blame is really saying this happened or this person did this. It's really focusing on something that's out of your control and rendering you powerless. And personal responsibility is about embracing your ability to control your response. Yes. Yeah. And in the specific case of going back to Paul Kohler, he was primed from some experience he had in his younger years with having to find creative solutions to problems that he could not control. And maybe not everybody is primed in advance of things happening to be able to say, okay, I am strong. I have a lot of willpower. I'm creative. And so as a result of this bad thing that happened, this change that I have to endure, I'm ready for it. I can handle it. And that's taking personal responsibility and tapping into your power, your ability. And do you think it's just because people aren't primed for it or they have to be coached on this? Why do we always go to blame? Because not everybody naturally goes to personal responsibility like Paul Kohler did. No, it's an amazing thing to watch that happen in his situation. But I think what it is, is I think we're raised in a culture of blame. I think blame is very much a part of what the conversation that occurs around the dinner table. Blame is very much the conversation that occurs on TV. It seems like if you watch a sitcom, there's always this underlying theme of blame and whose fault it is and who can we get mad at, who's responsible. So it's very much a part of the culture. And I think it's easier to blame than it is to take personal responsibility because people can take advantage of you when you take personal responsibility. When we blame, we sometimes think we can avoid having to take personal responsibility for something. So I think it's something that we do and we think it's the best response that we could have. However, there's more benefits to taking personal responsibility than there is to blame. And one of the things I like to do is look at what is the benefit? How is this going to serve me? I certainly see how it served Paul. And I certainly have seen how it serves me now that I've stopped blaming myself for the things that I did. And I stopped blaming my dad for the things he did. I stopped blaming other people in my life for what they did. It just doesn't serve me. It just keeps me stuck. So I began to take personal responsibility for how I respond to everything that happened in my life. And what it does is it gives me my power back. I'm in control now. I'm no longer the victim. We lose control when we let blame form in our mindset that causes us to respond the way we respond in a very debilitating, negative way. And I think we are allowing those situations that happened in our life to control us because we're a victim to them. And when I stop blaming, and forgiveness is one way to stop blaming, I get my power back and I'm in control. The other thing that I found when I stopped blaming was I started having more respect for myself. 
I become more confident. I became more bold and courageous. I think that was really important to me because when I blamed, I didn't feel self-respect because blaming another person is not a respectful thing to do. That really changed for me. When I stopped blaming, I started to feel more self-respect and I started to feel more confident and bold. The other thing is I became more respected. I became more trusted and more of a person that other people wanted to be around. I was seen as a person who had strength and resolve because I didn't blame. I didn't make excuses. I said, I'm personally responsible for how I'm responding to the situation and I'm going to take responsibility for the situation. I think one of the key things about being a good leader is to take personal responsibility for everything that happens. You aren't a good leader if you turn around and blame your subordinates for the things that are happening. That's not being a good leader. Because a good leader says, okay, what am I doing here to not create an environment of success for my subordinates? Am I not creating a good vision here? Am I not giving them the tools to be successful? Am I not following up on things that we've agreed to do? Am I not making agreements? I mean, instead of blaming other people, you take personal responsibility for it. You're more respected. You're seen as a person of strength and resolve. People want to follow leaders that don't blame. And I think that's really a benefit of this. When we re-examine our life and we recognize the amount of blaming we're doing, and we can stop blaming by incorporating beliefs and precepts in our life that cause that to change, as Paul Kohler did and as I've done and as I wrote about in the book, we can begin to take personal responsibility for everything that happens when we become the leaders not only of ourselves, but the leaders of our family and the leadership in our places of employment. Any thoughts about that, Brian, as we wrap up here? Well, it seems like there are really a lot of layers to this personal responsibility thing. Blame is so simple, and our attitudes, our brains are like ready for it. Like you said, it's a part of our culture, it's a habitual thing in tribes big and small to blame others and yet personal responsibility it's opposite the blame is very complicated so there's a acceptance layer where you say okay that happens there's really not much i can do about that happening there is a personal power layer where you say okay i am strong enough to be able to handle this there's a penitence layer where you say, okay, I got to confess that I made a mistake. I regret that mistake because I see the damage that it did. To a lot of people, that's the most terrifying part of the personal responsibility thing is the penitent layer of acknowledging, oh, I'm human and I messed up and this mistake is going to cost me now. It's going to cost me energy. It might cost me financially. And yet, promise of forgiveness and respect and esteem that's to be gained by that penitence layer is absolutely out of this world, how priceless that is, how much people respect you when you just apologize and admit you made a mistake. And then there's also the forward motion layer of personal responsibility. Okay, what's next? Instead of being stuck in the past, you say, what's next? There's layers here to this personal responsibility process. 
And some of those layers are pretty intimidating. So it's easy to understand why many of us stay stuck in blame because personal responsibility is layered and it's intimidating. But the rewards are great. And it's something that requires a lot of practice. But if you try it and see how it goes, you'll find that your relationships will be stronger because you're not throwing other people under the bus. People respect someone who will confess that they made a mistake and change. People respect someone who leads in personal responsibility. And it's healthier for you, for your mental state, to examine your life around the idea of how much blaming am I doing? How do I stop this blame and start that personal responsibility thing. It's not an overnight examination of your life to just say, okay, I'm going to stop blaming and I'm going to start taking personal responsibility. It's a decades-long process of assiduously reminding yourself, stop blame, start taking personal responsibility. Wouldn't you agree? It absolutely is. And what makes it so difficult is we're so locked up in the kind of relationships where people expect us to do it. They continuously do it because we expect them to do it. So it's not just our change that we need to make within ourselves. We need to change the mix of our relationships that we have and the significant people in our life because they're going to keep us stuck as well. And if we aren't careful, I think that's the reason it takes so long is because you have to go through this process of getting your tribe or your group or your family to change along with you. So they support you in your attempt to say, I'm going to take personal responsibility for how I respond for everything that happens in my life. And my response is going to be more edifying and serving of others and myself than it is right now. And that's the change we want people to consider. And Brian, we'll wrap up this today. It's been a great conversation. Certainly, it's something that requires more processing and more consideration and more critical thought. And with that, I want to thank you, Brian, for being a guest today. And thank everyone else for joining us for Ride the Elephant today. We'll see you next week. Dr. Ray McKinley is a speaker, author, and coach. In his new book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, Dr. McKinley addresses the crisis in personal leadership and what you can do about it. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week.